And this is a uh, this, uh, every now. I mean, every whenever you're going through the Gospel of Mark, it's nice because it's it's all Christ centered, Christ focused, Christ exalted. But there, every now and then, you'll catch a passage that is especially so, and that's one of these passages today. So, Mark chapter seven, and when you get there, we'll be in thirty one through thirty seven. Okay, Mark chapter. 7, 31 through 37. Mark 7, 31 through 37. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit to give us illumination now, and then we'll read this. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you for being with your people. We thank you for, for uh, thank you, oh God, for, for giving us your scriptures. Holy Spirit, we know that these are God-breathed. We know that these testify to the things of Christ that he did and taught on earth. And so, Lord, as we open this up, this afternoon, we pray that you would give us a special measure of grace, that you would give us unction, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Oh God, we know that without your Holy Spirit, we can't do it. This can't happen. So Lord, give us your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, 31 through 37. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his finger into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And you notice that last phrase there. It says, He does all things well. So if you're going to title this sermon, it would be something like that. He does all things well. And here's the thing about doing all things well. There have been in the Bible a lot of people who do a lot of remarkable things. And they're in the flesh. They're human beings. But they do remarkable things. Think of, think of Daniel's friends who go into the, fire, the fiery furnace with Nebuchadnezzar. And they withstand that. They have faith. Before they go in there, they say, hey, if we die, we die. You know, if, if God doesn't want to save us, that's fine. But we're not going to bend the knee. And they go in there anyways. Christ redeems them. Christ takes care of them. Abraham, he leaves everything he has. He goes out in faith. He walks by faith. He lives by faith. Then God says, hey, take your son that you love, your firstborn son. Go sacrifice. And he's on his way to do that. We, we see these things. Right, You see this throughout the scriptures. You see people doing remarkable things. But there's no one that you can say that they do all things well. They do some things well. You and I, we know people that do some things well. Right? They do such and such. Pretty good. They're pretty good at this. They're pretty good at that. They do, they do a lot of things well. They do some things well. But nobody, you, about, you can't say this about anybody, that they do all things well. And so what Christ is doing here is when he goes and he's doing these miracles, remember, it's more than just these isolated, disconnected stories of him going and touching someone and healing someone. And we say, wow, that's a really cool story. That's a really nice story. That's really great for that guy who got healed. And that's it. There's something way bigger going on here. And that's what we're seeing here. So look at verse 31. Check this out. Okay. So. First of all, it's very important to know that when you're reading through the Gospels, it's important to know where Christ is geographically. To know where he is. What region is he in? Is he in the north? Is he around Jerusalem? Is he in the south? Here he's in Gentile country. Last week we saw he was in Gentile country. He was in Tyre last week. So that's why in verse 31 it says, again, he went out from the region of Tyre. So he was in Tyre. That's when the lady comes up. And we we talked last week how Tyre, according to the first century Jewish historians, Tyre was their most bitterest enemy. Remember Josephus? 
The most bitterest enemy that we had as Jews were these guys in Tyre. Well, Christ goes there with the gospel, demonstrating that the gospel is now going to people who are, quote-unquote, unclean, because the gospel comes to eliminate those distinctions in the sense of dietary laws and, and, and holiness codes and things that you should do or shouldn't do. It's about whether you're in Christ or not. That's what makes you clean or not clean now. So Christ is going to these Gentile areas. Look what he does, okay? So he goes out from the region of Tyre, and he comes through Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee. And if you're looking at the map, it was very humorous going through these commentaries about this, about this passage. And, and these commentaries are generally uh, pretty good. But so, so what they're doing is, is they say, okay, we can't figure out what Christ is doing here. Because he's in Tyre, but then he goes way out of his way. So if he's trying to go from Tyre to Decapolis, he, he, he basically went completely, the completely wrong direction. He went the wrong way. He goes way north to Sidon. Sidon is about 20, 25 miles north of Tyre. Tyre is already north. So he goes even further north. And then he crosses over. Um, he comes down and then he crosses over until he gets to Decapolis. And these commentators, they're like, man, I can't figure out why he's doing that. What's going on here? Surely Mark made a mistake. Surely Mark doesn't know what he's talking about. You know, not all of them are saying that. Some of them, right? They're saying, you know, some, there's some kind of, there's, there's a slip of, of something. But whenever you see Christ, what he's doing here, Christ, we, we already know that when Christ is going to certain areas, he's preparing the soil, especially he's in Gentile country. He's in Gentile territory. Okay. So what is he doing? He's preparing the ground for the gospel. And so when he gets to the, the Decapolis, check this out. Okay. And I'm saying this because of this. That's exactly what happened in Decapolis. Verse 32 says this. They brought to him. So he's in Decapolis now. They brought to him. That phrase right there. Think about what this phrase means, okay? They, they brought to him. Who brought to him? Who brought who to whom, right? The people in Decapolis. Decapolis is a big region. It's, uh, it's east of Israel. It's a big region with a lot of cities, okay? When was the last time Christ was in Decapolis? The demoniac. The demoniac who's in the cemetery, he's cutting himself, he's screeching and hollering and, and pulling, you know, they, they try to bind him with chains and he's ripping the chains off. And Christ goes in there, he crosses the Sea of Galilee for the express purpose of these, this man who's filled with this legion of demons and he casts the legion of demons into the pigs. Right? And then, here's the catch though, here's why this phrase they brought to him is so important. What was the people's response to Christ after he exercises these demons out of this man into the pigs? They're not happy about it. Remember that? They go to Christ and they say, Christ, you got to get out of here. You have to leave our region. We don't want you in our region anymore. You need to leave. But here he is now. And what's going on? And in Matthew, it says, Matthew 15, it says that a great crowd of blind, crippled, dumb, and many others were flocking to Christ. What has happened in this region? Think about this, right? The last time Christ is here, they're like, we want nothing to do with this guy. This guy's trouble. This guy's making a mess of things. There goes our, our, our finances and the pigs, you know, the pigs go down. And, and, and it's just kind of spooky, this guy that we couldn't restrain even with, with, with ropes and with chains. And, and then all of a sudden, this guy shows up and boom, he's subdued. He's calm. Everything's fine now. They say, Christ, you have to leave. So what's happened in the meantime? What's happened? Think of this. What did Christ tell the demoniac to do? The demoniac's like, hey, Christ, can I go with you on the boat? Please, can I go with you guys? I don't want to stay here. I want to go where you're going. What does Christ say? No. He says, no. You can't go with us. You need to go back to your people. Go back to this region and tell everybody what great things God has done for you. 
And lo and behold, what's he do, right? We can assume he's going around and he's doing that. And then Christ shows up and lo and behold, everybody... Hey, he's back. Here's the guy that the guy was telling us about, the demoniac that we knew was out of his mind, and now he's not out of his mind. He's telling us about this man who gave... He's back. He's in our territory. He's in our region. So they're flocking. They're coming to see him. Okay? That's kind of the setup here. Now, they bring this guy. What's wrong with this guy? Look at verse 32. He's deaf, and he spoke with difficulty. Um, here's the thing on this, okay? So he's deaf, he spoke with difficulty. He's not entirely without speech. He can speak, but not, not easily. And so that's, a lot of times people, when they look at this, they say, okay, so he was probably not born this way. It's probably some disease that came in and ravaged him because he learned to speak somewhere. And if you learn to speak, you have to hear, right? You have to be able to hear to learn to speak. And so he's deaf now, but he wasn't deaf at one point because he can speak somewhat. Here's the thing on this, okay? Like I mentioned just a second ago, when you're looking at Christ doing these miracles, there is never, I would say, a time when these miracles are meant to just be miracles. They're always pointing to something else. Especially here, okay? This word here for speaking with difficulty is the same word. It's an extremely rare word. It only happens in two different places. If you want to talk about someone speaking with difficulty or having extreme difficulty when they speak or having some kind of impediment, Mark uses a word that you ordinarily would not use for that. Mark uses a word that is extremely rare. It happens only, there's only one other occurrence in the Bible where this word is mentioned, and it happens to be Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35. So what Mark is doing here is Mark is trying, just like we've seen other places, Mark will quote from the Old Testament every now and then. He'll give you these, these, these allusions to the Old Testament. What are you supposed to do when you see that? You go to the Old Testament, right? You say, okay, what's the background of Isaiah 35? What's going on here? And in Isaiah 35, if you turn there, you'll see in verse 4 through 10, Isaiah 35, 4 through 10, okay, the context, the backdrop of Isaiah in this chapter, what's going on in this chapter is right before 35, there have, there have been a series of chapters that speak of the judgment of God upon the nations of Edom, Egypt, Tyre, Israel, Jerusalem, which tells you all the world. Right? That's, that's Gentiles and, and, and Israelites alike. God's judgment coming on everybody. Okay? Isaiah 35, though. And you see this in the prophets, right? In the prophets, you see a lot of judgment. And then, boom, what do you have? You have this passage or this little section of, of this grace that shimmers through. And it's about God. He's going to come in. And he says, you know, it's something like, but despite all of this wickedness, despite the darkness, despite the rebellion... But God, God is going to show up and he's going to do something. That's the passage, Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, let's start in verse 4. Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. Remember that, right? The recompense of who? God. But he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And here it is right here. Here's the phrase. And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool in the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway. And it will be called the highway of holiness. The unclean will not travel on it. 
But it will be for those for him who walks that way, and fools will not wonder on it. No lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is what people have been longing to find, right? So, so you would think, I mean, the, 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 the rabbinic, the rabbis at the time of Christ looked at Isaiah 35 as a messianic passage about the Messiah. And it clearly is. You read through this and it clearly is. So what is Mark doing? Right? Mark is connecting what's happening to this man, the healing that Christ is about to perform on this man, with Isaiah 35. You see how it's not just about a nice story about some guy getting healed. It's bigger than that. It's saying the Messiah is here now. The Messiah has come. This day that we've been waiting for, this day that we've longed for. This thing that we can't do as Israelites, that we can't muster up inside of ourselves and say, hey, we're going to come in and we're going we're, we're to do what we have to do. and We're going we're to walk in the right way. And God's like, you can't do that. The Bible shows we as sinful people, how often we go astray, how often we rebel, how often. And so all these sacrifices in that old covenant era under that old covenant system, they're all pointing to Christ. They realize that there's something about my sin that has to be done. What's it? What, what's the answer? The Messiah, he's going to come and do something about it. So here he is, right? He's on the ground. Here's the thing, though. If you go back to Mark chapter seven, go back there and then look what happens, though. So they bring to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hands on him. Okay? Now, verse 33, look what Christ does. And this is kind of the other neat thing, okay? So there's, there's two errors. There's two extremes here. On the one side, you can look at every miracle that Christ does in the lens of, oh, this is a prophecy that's fulfilled. Oh, this is about the day of the Lord. Oh, this is pointing to the Messiah who's to come. And, and that's true, right? That's absolutely, we just saw that. But there's something else. There's, a, there's another side to it. So there's two sides. The other side is, this is a human being made in the image of God who is an individual, who's flesh and blood, who actually lived. He actually had a name. He had parents. He had maybe children. He had a job. He's a unique individual with a serious problem. He can't hear anything, right? He can't speak. And so you could come to this guy and say, hey, this is great because this demonstrates that the prophecies about the Messiah is actually here. It's come. And he's like, yeah, that's great and everything. But I'm also happy because I can hear now. So there's the individual aspect as well. And so, you know, this is this is neat because as far as salvation goes, we can get caught up on both sides. So if all we see when it comes to, let's say, salvation, we have these great doctrines like like adoption and justification and regeneration and sanctification and all these things. Right. Even the atonement. We're looking at this and we're talking about it and we see it in the work of Christ and, we, and, and the elect and the sheep and all these things. And all those things are true. But. You, we always have to remember there is a unique, individual, subjective aspect to all of this, right? Meaning that Christ didn't just die for a whole bunch of people. He died for you if you're in Christ. Atonement. Yes, atonement is a glorious doctrine. But atonement is applied to you. You have it. Your, your, sins, your sins have been atoned for. You see that? See how we can do that? Because, you know, so both sides are true. Both things are true. But don't ever forget the individual aspect of it that Christ in his mercy from the beginning of time and his grace elected you to die for you. That's important. 
And so that's, in a sense, what Christ is doing here. Christ is calling this man out. Look what he does. He, he doesn't just call him aside. I mean, he does call him aside. But it says, it emphasizes two things here. Or it emphasizes it by saying, saying it twice. He takes him aside from the crowd. And you're like, yeah, okay. So we've talked about this before. Everywhere Christ goes, there's a crowd. And it's a vicious crowd. It's, it's not a tame crowd. It's not a quiet crowd. It's not a subdued crowd. You're talking about a, a, a significant, it's, it's almost like a mob scene. People are desperate. He's their only hope, physically, spiritually, so they're desperate to get to him. What's he do? He takes this man apart from the crowd, and just in case you missed it, it says by himself. And what's he do? He puts his fingers into his ears. What is that? I'm serious. Like, why would you? If you think, what is he doing with the fingers in the ears? What is going on there? We've seen Christ heal. How have we seen Christ heal people? Sometimes people touch him. The woman with the flow of blood. Sometimes he touches people. The leper. Sometimes he doesn't touch anyone at all. He just says it and it happens. We saw that last week with the, with the child, the, the daughter of the woman who has the demon in her. And he just speaks the word and it happens. So all these things. But yet Christ decides in this man's case, he's going to put his fingers into his ears. Um, now... Admittedly, we don't know why, right? I mean, there's a sense in which you're like, there's the, there, as far as exactly why Christ does what he does, we can't know. We don't know. God doesn't give us that insight. There's a reason for it. However, however, think of this, okay? So this man can't hear and the man can't speak. Okay, we've seen in other places that there's this idea that Christ uses the senses as an aspect of whether or not you're born again or not. What do I mean? Okay, Christ says things like this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's not talking about whoever's not deaf, literally deaf, make sure you hear this. He's saying you can hear everything I'm saying, but you don't hear what I'm saying. Right? Just like people in John, we'll see someday maybe, in the Gospel of John, if we ever go through the Gospel of John, there's the, there's the guy who's born blind, and Christ heals his blindness, and then the Pharisees go to Christ and they say, what, are we blind too? And Christ says, if you were blind, then you would see. It's a spiritual application, a spiritual metaphor. It's an allegory of what Christ is doing, right? So the idea here is this, okay? When you're looking at what Christ does to this man, yes, again, we have to always keep in mind that Christ is actually healing this man, but he's also pointing there's something else going on here, okay? Think about this. So this idea of hearing... If you turn to Exodus 21, 2 through 6, okay, the bond slave. Paul regards himself as a bond slave of Christ. What's a bond slave? A bond slave of Christ. Where does Paul even get that, that reference? He gets that reference from Exodus 21, verse 2. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, then he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost. Notice that right there? Somebody brings this man, what's to say? Then his master shall bring him to God. What have we just seen? Someone brings him to this, who? God? Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. That's the mark of being a bond slave. 
And so maybe, again, maybe, it's, it's, like I said, there's no way to, to know for sure as far as the different ways that Christ heals and why. But there is an idea of being a bond slave when it comes to hearing. A circumcised ear, you can say. Uh, Moses says, circumcise your hearts. Circumcision in the Old Covenant was always meant to be a reference to the circumcised heart. It was never meant to just be a physical sign. Moses says that plainly. He says, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you can be circumcised, but you're not circumcised. Right? You can hear, but it doesn't mean you can hear. You can see, but it doesn't mean you can see. When we're talking spiritual, spiritual matters. So what's going on with this man, in a sense, is Christ is putting his fingers into his ear. He's recognizing the man is, is deaf. And whenever he pulls, I guess, you know, at one point he pulls his fingers out of the man's ears. I'm back in Mark now. And then it says this, okay? He spits. Look at this. After spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. This is very earthy stuff. He is intimately, right? I mean, I wouldn't do that. I mean, maybe to my my sons, you know, put your fingers and but I mean, outside of that, no way, nobody. And so this is a very earthy, a very intimate situation where Christ is, is, is doing this stuff. But notice with the saliva. You know, the, the idea of the saliva is very curious because two weeks ago we talked about how Christ was saying that, that what comes um, from within is what defiles a man. We're defiled not because of external matters, but because of our heart. That's what defiles us. Well, is Christ defiled? He's not. And he's talking about what comes out. Right is a, is, a, is a response of what's in your heart. Well, what comes from Christ, He's clean, He's pure. And so some people will look at this as almost like a quasi-sacramental thing where you're, you're, the saliva of Christ is being applied to this man's tongue, which in turn, now that's not it though, because in verse 34 it says, He looks up to heaven with a deep sigh. And so when you sigh, what do you do? You inhale and what do you do? You exhale. So in John chapter 20, there's this reference of Christ exhaling, breathing, and that's a reference to the Holy Spirit coming upon this man. Okay, so all these factors, and I'm not saying, here's the thing, okay, I'm not saying that's the only thing going on here, like this spiritual picture of regeneration, as we'll see in a minute. But I am saying that that is something. That is something to keep in mind, because all of these, the way these phrases are mentioned makes you kind of think there's something else going on here. He breathes, he exhales, he says to him, Ephaphtha, no one knows what that means. It's some kind of Aramaic slash Hebraic kind of clumped together kind of thing. So nobody exactly knows as far as like who was using that. It does mean be open. Okay, be open. In verse 35, and his ears were opened. And the impediment of his tongue was removed. And he began speaking plainly. Now, ask yourself this though. As we look at, 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 at this, as, now, now consider this, okay? What is, okay, in the scriptures, when it comes to salvation, you can go and you can talk to somebody all day long about the gospel, all day long, all day long, and they don't get it, right? They just don't get it. But then you talk to someone else. Um, I had a, I think, I, I might have mentioned this, but when we were at College Station, our pastor there, and I think I did mention this, spare me, but this is months ago. <laughs> Maybe we have new people. Um, we're in college station. The pastor there was telling me he was a bus driver for a while. And he's driving the bus, driving the bus. And this guy would always drive the bus with him. And he's telling the gospel to this guy every single day. Every single day. It would just come up. It was like their thing. that they, He'd get on the bus and they'd just start talking. And the guy knows, hey, he's going to talk to me about the gospel. I'm okay with that. But I don't believe it. 
Well, the guy goes into a stall in a bathroom one time, and he finds a gospel track there. He reads the gospel track, and it clicks, and he comes out of the bathroom, he's saved. And then he calls the guy, and he's like, hey, guess what? This is like 10 years later. And he's like, guess what? I'm a Christian now. He's like, what happened? I read the gospel track in the bathroom. The guy's like, what? I was telling you the same thing that was on the track over and over and over again. Right? That's how it is. Remember what Christ tells Nicodemus. The Holy Spirit is like the wind. It blows wherever it wants to. And then it finds, it, I mean, it goes and it does whatever it wants to as well. So, so here you have this idea, though. What you always have, though, is the idea is faith comes by hearing. That is, a, that is now we're reading, but the idea is the content of the gospel gets to a person and their eyes are open. Here's, here's the thing. Every single, every single one of Paul's letters has this idea of faith comes from hearing. This man's ears are open. Okay, Physically, yes, but this is also a picture of regeneration. Here's the other thing. What about the tongue? You know what happens when a, when a person is born again? Their speech is different. The way they speak, the way they talk. And I'm not just talking curse words and this and that, vulgarity. Yeah, of course, that too. But I mean even the things they talk about. Even the conversations that you want to talk about. The things that, 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 that flow from your mouth. Remember Christ says, out of the abundance of a person's heart, the mouth speaks. Your, your, your speech changes. It's no, it's no accident that this man had an impediment of speech and Christ comes in and does something about his mouth. Look what, and this is just a brief sample size of what the Bible says about speech, about talk, about the tongue. Okay, there's just a very brief sample size. This is from different places in the scriptures. The tongue has the power of life and death. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Conversation. Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. The soothing tongue is a tree of life. The mouth of the wicked gushes evil. May my lips overflow with praise. May my tongue sing of your word. And this is from James. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. No human being can tame the tongue. But you know who can tame the tongue? God can tame the tongue. I know that, I mean, I'm, I, if Eric probably remembered, I don't know, but I remember, man, my, I had a filthy sailor's mouth before I was converted. And after I was converted, that was the, one of the things I was convicted by. It's like, man, I've got to clean up some of the F-bombs. But then I'm like, nah, that's not enough, man. I'm saying other stuff. And you know, it's just this weird conviction that you come under. You're like, man, my, I've got to clean up. It takes, a, it takes a while. It takes some time. But that's the thing. What is, what is God doing? He's taming the thing that nobody else in the universe can tame. We can tame animals. We can tame lions. We can tame crocodiles, whatever. That's what James's point is. We can do anything we want. But we can't control the tongue. Of course, we're not perfect at it. We we want to be perfect at it. We're striving to be perfect at it. But that's the thing, right? Whenever you're born again, your ears are open. You now receive things that you ordinarily would say, man, I want, no, thank you. I don't want to hear about that. Now you're like, boom, it makes sense. Your tongue is different now. Paul talks about his eyes. What happens? The scales fall out of his eyes. What's he talking about? His eyes are open to the truth. He can always see, but now he sees. See, so as you're looking at Christ and what He's doing here, there's more to it than just miracles. 
there are miracles. I mean, I'm sure the guy was happy. He's like, dude, what are, what are you talking about, Ryan? I'm just happy I can speak. I'm just happy I can talk at all, man. But the idea here is the scriptures are pointing to something beyond just that. Okay. Now, also, look at their response, the peoples. So the people see this, right? They're the ones that bring him. He comes back. The man can see, excuse me, the man can talk, the man can hear, verse 36. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone. We've already seen this before. He doesn't want the message of healing. We've all seen it before. We had a guy in Lubbock today. He came in and he says, man, we're, we're kind of like, so how'd you hear about the church? He's, he, and he said, I'm just tired of the prosperity gospel junk. That's what he said, his words. And this idea that it's all about healing and it's all about faith, making you better and faith doing this. He said, I, I just wanted something simple. Well, praise the Lord, right? That's kind of what Christ is doing here. We've seen Christ when he goes and he does miracles. That becomes the emphasis. And in John, he even says, you guys come to me because I can give you bread. That's all you're after. That's all you're wanting. But then when he gives them the hard truths about the kingdom of God, what happens? Then you see the cream of the crop actually rise and everyone else kind of fall off. So that's kind of the enthusiasm. He's trying to, he's trying to, he's trying to balance the situation. Because his primary, as we've seen, his primary purpose is teaching and preaching. Also, though, the next section that we'll see in Mark, after around uh, Mark chapter 8, about the middle of Mark chapter 8 and afterwards, we're going to see Christ trying to spend time with his disciples to teach them, to train them. Here's the thing about Christ. He is on a mission, and that mission has an expiration. That mission is coming to a terminus. He's not going to be on earth forever. The disciples know that. He knows that. Here's the thing. Is there any way that Christ can just get around his disciples and just teach them? Just say, guys, what do you think? Never. Except when he's on a boat. But even when it's on the boat, there's storms and everything else. Those themselves are teaching moments. So about the middle of chapter 8, we're going to start seeing Christ trying to get more time um, increased focus on instructing his disciples. Okay. However, verse 37, they don't stay silent. They were utterly... Actually, the last part of verse 36, but the more he ordered them, the more widely, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. Verse 37, why are they proclaiming it? Why are they... I mean, here's the thing. We know how it is when something happens in life. You can't hold it in. I have a really big secret. I can't even say that because my mom listens to this. Um, I, I really, no, I really can't. My, and I can't even tell who told me to not say anything. So, all right, we'll cut that out. But the point is, is you get excited, right? And you're like, man, I just got to tell everybody. I just got to share. I got to share. That's what's going on. Hey, don't say anything. I got to, man. How can I hold back? How can I not say anything? Right? So what are they doing? They're going out and they're actually saying things that, hey, but here's the cool part about this whole thing. What are they saying? Verse 37, they were utterly astonished, saying, he has done all things well. He has done all things well. And when you read these commentaries, at first I was like, "Mm." but then I went back and I started looking at it. He's like, no, that's exactly right. They make the the, the point that this is an allusion to Genesis 1.31. In a sense, in the sense of this, after God makes everything, after He makes everything, He looks, He observes His creation, He beholds His creation, and He says it's all very good. It's His evaluation of what He's done. And these people are there, they're evaluating what Christ has done. They're evaluating the work of Christ. They're evaluating the person of Christ. They're evaluating the teachings of Christ. And unlike the Israelites, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, the people, they're looking at Christ and they're saying, this man does everything well. 
He does all things well. And it's an exclamation. It's tying Christ to the creation of the universe. Because why? This is the new creation. See, what Christ is doing here, we have to realize, see, Christ is setting up the new creation. The old covenant right now, as Christ is on earth, the old covenant is yielding to the new covenant. The old exodus, Moses delivering his people from, from Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. They get, why is it? Think about it. Christ, where does Christ go? You know, I've heard somebody the other day, they were talking about how Christ's life is a picture of the Israelites' life. The journey of the Israelites. What do you mean by that? Well, the Israelites, Abraham starts out in the promised land. Where's Christ born? Israel. But then what happens? They go to Egypt. What happens in Christ's life? He goes down to Egypt. Then what happens? God leads them out. What happens with Christ? God brings them back, leads them out, right? So this idea, but here's the thing. We've already seen the new Exodus aspect in certain places in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark. Where Christ is operating as a new Moses. We've seen him when he's feeding the 5,000. And, and, and he's feeding them what? He's feeding them bread. He's feeding them, what did Moses feed them? Manna. Where are they? They're in the middle of nowhere. Where's Christ? Middle of nowhere. We've seen these aspects, right? But that's what's going on here. So it's not a stretch to say, hey, this is a tie. This is, this is tying Christ in his life and his work and his ministry to Genesis. That's exactly what we should expect. Because we've seen Mark do this all the time already. When the disciples are on the boat and he comes walking on the sea. And we talked about how only Yahweh walks on the sea. All these different parts. Um, also, think of this. We, it's, it's so easy. I feel like we lose it just because we've, we've, we've read it and we've talked about it. And we're Christians. We're 2,000 years removed from this. But going back to the days of, like, let's say Isaiah. Man, they are in serious duress. And even the Israelites are in serious trouble because they're looking around and they're saying, Man, this is bleak. This is hopeless. We're in despair. We're we're under the boot of Rome, our enemies. Where's the victory? Where, where you know, God, are you going to do anything about this? And so when Christ shows up, not just not just for the Israelites, you know, the Gentiles as well. Because Paul, you'll see in Paul's letter, he's, he's talking about you know, apart from Christ, we saw it in Ephesians. You're without God. You're cut off from the Commonwealth. You're cut off from from Israel. You're you're outside the camp. You have no hope. You have no God. There's nothing going for you. And then Christ shows up. And when Christ shows up, things start to happen. What's happening? Slowly, but most definitely, Christ is doing work on the devil. He is destroying the stronghold of the devil. He's come to bind the strong man, and you're seeing this everywhere Christ goes. He's doing it in Israel. He's doing it in Galilee. He's doing it in Tyre. He's doing it in Sidon. He's coming around here to the Decapolis. He's, he's whipping the devil in the Decapolis. He's going to go back over here. And then ultimately to the cross. And that's where the ultimate victory over death, over the devil, over sin, over all of that is on the cross. So, let me ask you this. There's two things. Two things, okay? These people see what Christ does and their response is, He does all things well. Okay? That's very easy for us to say as well whenever things go our way. We say, man, God, you've done everything. You do all things well. When things go our way. Right? But let me ask you a question. Think about this man who has the speech impediment. We don't know how long he had the impediment for. We assume a while. We know the woman with the flow of blood 12 years. We know Paul the Apostle had thorn, a thorn, some kind of thorn in his flesh that he was asking God three times to deliver from. And what does God do? No. No. Why? Because my grace is sufficient. Power is perfected in Weakness. 
Not strength. You see that? Not this idea of, hey, I got it all figured out, everything going on. It's because of the moments of weakness and the moments of defeat that God comes in. The Israelites themselves, right? The reason you have these glorious passages about the victory of Christ, the glorious gospel passages, is because you're in the middle of a, of, of a valley. And then God shows up. Boom. So can you still say He does everything well even when you're in the middle of a trial? Even when you're struggling, even when things don't go your way, do you say God does all things well? Because it's not just, you know what I mean? It's not just, it shouldn't just be confined to the good things. Think of this. Okay, think of this. Think of, think of Joseph. Joseph when he sold into slavery. He's in, I mean, you feel, you, you got to feel for this guy. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. And then when he gets to Egypt, it looks like things are going well for him. Because now he's number two. Actually, he's Potiphar's main guy. Remember that? So he's probably like, oh man, things are finally looking up. Now I can almost say he does everything well. Almost. I mean, I wish I wouldn't got thrown into slavery. But he, you know, things are looking okay. But then right when he's saying that, what happens? Potiphar's wife accuses him of trying to sleep with her. And lo and behold, now he's in the dungeon. For a long time. And when he's in the dungeon, ask yourself, could he have said, God, you do all things well? If he knew the grand picture, he would have said it, right? If he knew that what God was going to do, he would have basically, he would have definitely been able to say God does everything well. That's the same for us. If you're in a trial, if you're in a struggle, if there's defeat or if there's whatever, and you're saying, oh man, I can't, then we're not looking at it in the big picture. We're not looking at it from the way that God is meant to, for us to look at it. So that's in the sense of God's providence, in the sense of His sovereignty, we can say He does everything well. Number two, number two, it's not just those kinds of things, but look at the things that Christ actually has done that are well. The fact that we're here. You know, the fact that we're, we're, we're children of God. The fact that we have, and we can go down the list of all the things we're blessed for. You know, we have, we have water. I mean, people don't give enough credit to water. Even food. You know, the, the miracle to, to think that when you come into the world... You have this thing that's already built in you called hunger. You don't, it's not like somebody has to wire something and then, or push a button or something. It's already in you so that you already know. It's instinctive, right? I've got to eat or I'm going to die. I've got to eat. And not only do you have that in you, but God has made it so that food tastes good. Those kinds of things. When you go outside, when somebody's born again, you go outside, you look at the stars, you see the stars differently. You see your role as a father or a mother differently. And so you're looking at this and you're saying, man, God does do all things well. Whether you're talking about the the problems, the victories, the good things, the bad things, He does everything well. And then number two, think of this though. All of this right here, everything about this story started with the demoniac going out and obeying Christ. And doing what Christ told him to do. It was that simple. When he goes out, you know, William Carey, whenever they went out as missionaries, do you know how long they labored for without seeing a single convert? Seven years. And they took a lot of flack when they left and they went overseas. There were people in England telling these guys, you guys are idiots. You guys have no idea what you're doing. Why are you doing that? And then can you imagine over there for seven years and you have nothing to, to write home about? And they're like, hey, how's it going? Uh told you so. I told you, right? I told you if you guys would have just listened, if you guys would have stayed here. And the same thing, you think about like even even two weeks ago with, with Thanksgiving, you think about these pilgrims, they come over. 
And you see those, those images of how many pilgrims died. I mean, it's 60% of the pilgrims, 70% of the pilgrims, they died. And then can you imagine you just show up and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And you're just building a little hut, man, just like these little hovels for you and everyone else. What, like 12 of you? So that you can survive the winter. You have, they have no idea that what they're doing, they're, on, they're, they're embarking on a mission that is going to, in a sense, transform into a world empire within 300 years. You see what I mean? So if you're looking at it like the demoniac, he's going out and he's telling people, and you know people at first were like, man, I, I see that you changed, but no, man, did, don't you know what this guy, this guy's problem, this guy's this, this guy's that, right? That's how it is in life. That's how it is when you go out and you're discipling your children and you're like, man, I don't know. I, we, we all need to be doing family worship. But I tell you what, with a three-year-old and a one-year-old doing family worship, it is a nightmare. <laughs> is it not? We know. I know a lot of you know. It's, it's, it, and you think, man, did anything just happen? Did anything get done? But then the next day, you know, you hear something, the kid will, one of them will say something, and you're like, oh, that was from last night or last week. You're like, oh, okay. It's amazing, right? So don't be so concerned about, oh, I've got to see this or I've got to see that. But just know this, God is using you. God is using whatever fruit that you're putting, whatever you're planting, whatever seeds you're casting, the discipling you're doing, all of that, God calls us to do it, first of all. But number two, God's going to give an increase. He does cause that to bear fruit. It doesn't return void. And we see that. That's what's neat about this guy. We don't know where he is, and praise God for that. And that's the other thing. It's not about us. It's not about this guy. It's it's the fact that God used this man, and all of a sudden now you have a whole flock that's going to Christ. That's all we're called to do. Just be faithful. Be faithful and trust in God. And know that He does everything well. Whether you see it or not, if you don't see it, then you're not looking at it from the right perspective, right? If you can't see that God does everything well. Even, Even a... I mean... The joys that we have in life that we don't even think of because we've always had them. You know, the, 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 the warmth in a building when it's cold. All these things, right? This is God giving us these things. Without, guess what? Without God, you don't have, you don't have electricity. Why? Because without electricity, you've got to have laws, numerical laws, mathematics, things like that in order to have electricity, right? Those come from God. You have to have people with the ingenuity to do that. People made in God's image. All these things come from God. So let's praise Him. Let's praise Him and then we'll, we'll come, to, come to the table. Oh God, we praise You. You do, you do, do all things well, oh God. We know that uh, apart from You, apart from Christ, Lord, what would we have? And Father, we pray especially for those apart from Christ, oh God, that, that they have these things, these common graces in their life, but they don't. They don't, they don't say that you are the one who, do, who does all things well. And we pray for them. And we pray for us, oh God. We pray that you would give us the heart to say you do everything well. You do all things well. Lord, forgive us for doubting this. Forgive us for grumbling or complaining. We pray that you would strengthen us. That you would help us to, to be as this man, this demoniac who went on um, and obeyed you. And, and to be like these people who see the work that you've done in their lives and around them, and they, they can't help but to proclaim you do everything well. Lord, let that, let, let that be us, O oh God. Let it so overwhelm us that we can't hold it back, that you do everything well. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the Lord's